Hello, this is Mike Foley. And Alexandra Foley. And we want to invite you to join us on a cruise. Drinking and dining with the saints in Croatia. Yes, we are going along the Adriatic Sea in a first-class yacht, and it's going to be awesome. It's very exclusive. Only 30 people That's get right. to go on this. That's and right. it's going to be a very special pilgrimage because it's going to be very relaxing. Exactly. Very, very relaxing. And we are being joined by our dear friend and priest, Father Red Blevins. And we're super excited. He's a great personality. Exactly. So please come join us. It's July 19th to the 29th, 2024. Four, which is... Less than a year, yeah. Yeah. So please join us. Like we said, there's only so many spots, and uh, we want you to come. You can find information on drinkingwiththesaints.com and on our Instagram, at Drinking Saints. Welcome to the Drinking with the Saints podcast with Mike and Alexandra Foley. Where each week, we mix a bartender's guide with the lives of the saints to help you celebrate the feasts of the calendar with liturgically correct cocktails. Let's get started. Welcome to the Drinking with the Saints podcast. I'm Mike Foley. And I'm Alexandra Foley. And welcome, saintly sippers, to our holy happy hour. Today, we are going to celebrate the feast of St. Jerome, a great father and doctor of the church, whose feast falls on September 30th. All right. Does that mean September is almost over? Yeah, that's that's what it means. Is that how that works? <laughs> that's how that works. I'm just really excited. And, and also, 30 days half September, so April, it's kind June, of the, November. Yeah, it's kind of the end of the month, dear. <laughs> I'm just thinking it's still really hot here. How excited uh, I am for the cooler weather. Yeah. We're in Waco, Texas. Same here. All right, let us begin in our customary way, and then we're going to cut straight to the chase with the drink. All right. Stay with us, O Lord, for it is getting towards evening. And bless our drinks and our conversation. Amen. St. Jerome. Pray for us. Pray for us. Let's do this. All right. So the designated drink for St. Jerome is the famous whiskey sour, which, as we will illustrate, well exemplifies the personality of our beloved St. Jerome. And we say this not as a compliment, just as a sociological observation. (laughs) It sounds like a uh, constructive criticism almost. Exactly. And when I said not as a compliment, I meant to say not as an insult. I guess it's not a compliment. It's not an insult. It's just a neutral observation. All right. Let's make that drink. The whiskey sour is awesome. In its most classic form, it involves egg white, which we highly recommend. It uh, Egg white enriches many drinks, and plus you get some protein in there, so it's good for you. But if you order a whiskey sour at a bar, chances are you'll get the whiskey sour without egg white, and that's the simpler version we're going to do right now. Oh, really? Oh, I like the egg white. I was going to say when you get it at a bar and it doesn't have the egg white, you throw it back into the bartender's face and say, where's my egg white? Only after the third round. (laughs) I want an egg white. All right, Mrs. Foley, please read the ingredients. Happily, this is one of my favorite drinks. Two ounces of whiskey, usually rye or bourbon. Two teaspoons of simple syrup, or you can use a half a teaspoon of powdered sugar. That's good. That's way too much. Sorry. You can always make it more sweet. You can't make it less sweet, unless you add more bourbon. (laughs) 
All right. And then one ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice. Okay. And a cherry, a lemon and cherry garnish. Yes, when when it's all over. <laughs> yeah, I you mean, don't, you don't what, mix that up. No, you don't put that in the shaker. That's the garnish. All right, so we're going to put it in the shaker filled with ice. Mm -hmm. We are, it has lemon juice, so it's opaque. And you shake. It's opaque, you shake. And we're going to do the customary penitential 40 times. Favorite sound. And we pour. That looks good, Mike Foley. Thank you, my love. Thank you, St. Jerome. Cheers. Cheers to St. Jerome. Pray for us. Our favorite curmudgeon. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's good. Yeah, it's... Mm -hmm. It's, it's a good summer drink. It's also good for the fall. The sour is delightful. I remember a wonderful evening with you drinking Me? whiskey sours in the jazz bar in Fort Worth. Oh, what was that, that called? called? Was it called simply the, ja the jazz club? I'll think of it. It's in, you, you have to go to downtown Fort Worth. Sundance Square. Sundance Square. You have to go down an alley. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end of the alley is a small neon sign for the jazz club and a door. You open the door, there's an elevator, and you go down like three flights into the bowels of the earth, and there's this super cool jazz bar. It is so... Jazz club. So it's called the jazz club, right? I'm about to remember it, by which I mean I'm Googling it. <laughs> it's called Scat... Jazz Lounge. We knew that. The Scat, Scat Jazz Lounge. I, I have a super cool photo of my probably going back 15 years. Oh, gosh. It's been that be, long? That we will post because it's a cool photo. So I don't know if they have this anymore, but in those days, people still had telephones. And the telephones had an answering machine. <laughs> and uh, Alexander and I were going on a special date trip and I wanted to call to see if they would be open on a Tuesday night when we were there. And I recommend this to my viewers. Don't flood the lines, but call the number if it's still there. Because the answering machine, the, the voicemail was so funny. It was this Barry White voice that said, You've reached the Scat Jazz Lounge. <laughs> That's that whole guy's entire job. Yeah, exactly. All he does is leave the voicemails. Hello. He did a fantastic job. So <laughs> I have fond memories of the whiskey sour. If you like jazz at all, you've got to go. It's so fantastic. Yes. We went on a Tuesday and there were probably four people there and it was so fun. Yeah, it really was. So, um, Jerome and jazz, I get the connection. Oh, of course. They were, they were both improvisational artists. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. That's good banter, Mike. Um, one small note about alcohol. We fear that maybe we were talking too much about saints and not enough about booze. We used simple syrup in our recipe tonight. And just a small note about simple syrup. You can buy it pre-made in the liquor store. If you're a sucker. Why would you do that? All you'd need to do is add equal parts of... What, Alexandra? Water, uh, water and sugar. Exactly. And then what do you do? 
you shake it. So you can like, I mean, if you look up a recipe for simple syrup, it's probably going to tell you to like heat up the water and put the sugar in and blah, 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 blah. until it dissolves. Until it dissolves. And then like, it takes forever. And then wait for it to cool down. Yeah. And, and then you got hot, simple syrup, which right. you don't you want, want in a cold, cold cocktail. Yeah. yeah. One time we went to someone's house and they're like, what do you want to drink? And then they suggested we have a sidecar. I'm like, great. And he's like, hold on. I just got to make the simple syrup. Pulls out the pan, starts heating it up. And I was like, Duck! it's just so easy. You just get, yeah. you know, a jar. We use a little ball jar, equal parts, shake it up. Little yeah. upper body workout while you're doing it. Yeah, you just shake it solidly for like a, a minute. Yeah. You, and just you gotta, you wait for the granules to dissolve and you're right. good to go. And You've you, got your simple syrup. You make a batch, it lasts like probably about two weeks. You'll know when it's no longer good because it looks a little funky on the inside, a little moldy, a little spots. Well, it looks like you've just discovered penicillin. <laughs> That's so true. And maybe you did. Exactly. All right, cheers. I like this drink. Cheers. Yeah, it's good. All right, so you kind of know the answer to this question, but... Why the whiskey sour for St. Jerome? Because he was a little bit sour of, of uh, temperament. Indeed he was. So sour of temperament was he that he bashed fellow church fathers. What? Wait, why the whiskey? I don't know why the whiskey. It was just about the sour. But he was strong. He was kind of a high-proof fellow. All right. I knew you could, t- you could make a tie in there. Hey, thank I, you. I was giving you a little challenge. And there was sweetness to him. One of the interesting things about Jerome is that 40% of the writings that we have of his are correspondence with Christian women huh. asking for advice. And he's a lot less sour with them than he was with the church fathers. Um, I've known a lot of men like that. They yeah. just be really acerbic when it comes to the wider public. Or to other men. And especially to other men. But yeah. then when it comes to women, there's just a real soft side. Yeah. So he was a great spiritual director for a lot of women, um, but he did not have what we would call a robust theology of marriage. Hmm. They would write to him saying, oh, I'm feeling guilty that I got married and wasn't a consecrated virgin. He's like, you're bad. No, no. His answer was, that's okay. The main purpose of marriage is to breed more children who can become consecrated virgins. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a take. Exactly. Yeah. No, it was early I mean, church. <laughs> what are his, his dates are like, what, 300? Yeah. 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 But yeah. still, I would be like, um, I'm going to find a new spiritual director. Exactly. <laughs> thanks, Where no are thanks. the Jesuits? Oh, they're not around yet. <laughs> well, let me go over briefly his interesting biography. He was born in modern day Slovenia. No way. Yes. My family is Slovenian. Exactly. One quarter. Now I see where you get your curmudgeonly nature. I don't know what you're talking about, (laughs) but my eyes tell a different story. So he's not sour. He's just Slovenian. Right. He's just an angry Slav. No, we are not an angry people. (laughs) No, we're going to go to Slovenia hopefully next summer. Excellent. And you're going to see that Slovenians are very warm. I'm, I'm sure they are. And also, I have no idea whether... The current Slavs in Slovenia sure. were there under Roman-controlled Slovenia, which was called something vastly different, which I forgot to write down. <laughs> Outer Romania. Exactly. Romania. But we do know he was from a wealthy Roman family. He was supremely well-educated, well-versed in Latin and rhetoric and everything else. He was a Christian, went to Rome mm-hmm. uh, for school, had some... Sexual dalliances. Oh, 
Kind I didn't of, know that. Kind of like Augustine. Wow. Um, and then felt bad about it. So what he would do was he would visit the catacombs of Rome any chance he got. And walking down into the catacombs reminded him of descending into hell. And that's when he's like, all right, I got to wise up. Clean up my act. Clean up my act. Wow. Yep. So he eventually went to Antioch in Syria. Heard of it. And he had an unusual idea. He wanted to learn Hebrew. And what's fascinating about the time is that neither Christians nor Jews wanted Christians to know Hebrew. The Christians thought it was superfluous. They had the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. When did they get that? 300 BC. So there was a a Jewish translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. So like, yeah, we got that. Like, what's what's the point of doing anything else? But what about the New Testament? Why need the Hebrew? That's also in Greek. So the church fathers had Greek. They so the 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 average Christian opinion is you don't need Hebrew. And he actually got flack when he started to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Latin for the Vulgate, right? Because he's the translator of the Vulgate, right? His one of his his main things, you know, on, on his CV was yep. uh, he translated the Bible into the Vulgate. From the original languages, from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. So that was a huge accomplishment, but he actually got pushed back, like, why on earth are you even bothering when we have the Septuagint? You know, that's that's been favored by God. Why, Why go back to the original? So he got flack from Christians, but then he had a devil of a time learning Hebrew from a Jew, because obviously only the Jews knew Hebrew, And at that time, there was such animosity between the two groups that if you were a Jew that taught Hebrew to a Gentile, you were a traitor. I can imagine so. So he finally convinced a Jewish guy to teach him Hebrew, mm -hmm. and the Jewish guy would only visit in the dead of night. Wow. So he learned Hebrew Mm -hmm. like every night from midnight to 3 a.m., for months on end, and that's how he learned Hebrew. Do we know if that Jew converted? I don't think so. It's like, this guy's kind of cranky. <laughs> also, it's the middle of the night. So he learned Hebrew. Huh. And then he went back to Rome, and Pope Damasus was super impressed with his skills and said, hey, you need to translate the Bible, huh? which he did, and it produced what's called the Vulgate. Now, it wasn't completely an original translation. He sometimes made concessions to existing translations rather than totally upset the apple cart. Mm-hmm. But he did it, and again, he got flack. One of his critics was St. Augustine. Heard of him. St. Augustine thought it was arrogant of one man to translate the whole Bible hmm. by himself. Had they met each other at this they'd, point? They never met in their lives. They never did meet. Okay. They never did Had meet. they exchanged letters? Oh, yeah. I know they did. Yeah. But at this point, when Augustine's like, oh, I think it's arrogant, had, had they been exchanging letters? No, he came out with a Vulgate, and then Augustine... And Augustine was like, yes, sir. Yeah, and then Augustine criticized him for it. Okay. Because one of the episodes was in North Africa. They were used to their Latin translation of the Bible, mm-hmm. and the bishop was reading from the book of the prophet Jonah, and he used a word to translate a word uh, that, that Jerome had used. And the word was gourd. Like Jerome used a different word for gourd 
in Latin than they, what they were used to. And the congregation flipped out and almost deposed the bishop. That's very strange. Like, what? was there a double entendre there we don't know about? <laughs> Seriously, gore. I mean, gore, you could see there'd be some weird words associated with gore. But why would you flip out over one word? Because what, what's fascinating is how well the, the congregation oh, knew the so. scriptures, but it also shows how stubbornly conservative Christian sensibility is. Just to give you another interesting example, um, so in Rome, they accepted Jerome's Vulgate, mm-hmm. and that meant the priest, the lectors could do the Bible readings in the new Vulgate. But the other parts of the Mass, the Intruit, the Graduale, and the uh, Communion verse, were, uh, at that time, they weren't sung by a scola, they were sung by the congregation. And they knew the old Latin translations. And when the Vulgate came out, they basically said, nah, no thanks. And so even though the the new liturgy books came out, they just kept singing the old stuff. Hmm. So when you look at the traditional Latin mass, you're like, oh, it's all in Latin. But there actually are three different Latin translations in the Latin mass. The old Italian, the Vulgate, and then, small side note, for the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, introduced in 1955, they used what was called the Psalter of Pope Pius X which lasted about 15 minutes. Oh. So the current Latin that we get at the Latin Mass is made up of three different yes. translations. 90% of the times it's, it's the two different ones. Okay. It's the old, what's called the old Italic translation of the Bible, the Vetus Latina. I thought you said Italian. It's called Italic. Okay. Um, I think it's called Italic. It's the Vetus Latina, Old Latin. And... Um, that's for the what's called the antiphonary, the introit, the graduality, the parts that are sung. Mm-hmm. But then the Bible readings, the epistle and the gospel, are right. from the Vulgate because the clergy had control over those readings. Okay. But the congregation had control over what was sung, and they chose the old translation because they were used to it. They were stubborn. Are you? This is kind of a side note, but are you saying that the antiphony was all done by the congregation? Yeah, In other antiphonary. words, antiphonary. There was not a, a, like a music director? That is correct. They were not like being like hymn number 45. Yeah. They, they were just like, this is what we do. We're yeah. just, we're just, we just know what to do. Like, like a folk song. Like we're all going to sing, you know, Rocky Mountain yeah. High or something. They know. Oh, yeah. wow, that's fascinating. It is. And the music, the chant was a lot less complex back then. Mm-hmm. It grew more complex when it became the purview of the monasteries and they had a longer institutional memory. Mm -hmm. Um, But the average Christian, St. John Chrysostom tells us, knew the entire Psalter by heart. Wow. The average Christian knew all all 150 Psalms by heart because it was the Christian hymnal. Yeah. They didn't have a hymnal. Their hymnal was the Psalter. So was there a lot of variety? I mean, you know, how like the game of telephone, how you're doing this in North Africa and you're doing this in in, uh, Milan. You know, it's gonna it's gonna undergo changes. Yeah. Whether it's the melodies or the, the the words or pronunciations, even. I doubt it would be the words because the the there is a text. There was the Vetus Latina, which everyone was drawing from, mm-hmm. and then eventually the Vulgate. I imagine the melodies could have changed quite a bit, especially before the age of musical notation. Right. Everything had to be held in memory. memory yeah, I think memory was a lot better. So, uh, and so, and they're singing in their common tongue, or they're singing in uh, an antiquated. 
Ooh, good question. I think they were singing in a somewhat antiquated Latin that they could probably readily understand. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, I forgot one other thing about the whiskey sour before we return to our saint of the day. Yeah. When I was doing research about this drink, I discovered something very interesting. There was a university in England that did a study of the effect that different drinks have on people. Mm -hmm. And they discovered that uh, people who drink sour drinks take more chances. (laughs) That's so funny. So they had 168 people and they had them gamble. And they had some people drink sweet alcohol drinks, some people drink sour drinks, some people drink another kind of drink. And it was the ones who had sour drinks like the whiskey sour that played for longer and ultimately won more money than those sipping sweet or bitter drinks or exposed to salty or umami tastes. I am, I have so many questions, but this drink is not just sour. This is obviously a sweet and sour drink. I know, but the sour... Like, what is a sour drink? With so, this without the simple syrup? So their explanation is, in terms of evolutionary biology, uh, in our caveman past, a sour taste could be a sign of dangerous or toxic foods. So forcing down something unpleasantly sour is already a risk-taking behavior which encourages more of the same. <laughs> I can imagine it's kind of like, I mean, you're drinking a sweet drink and you're kind of like, this is great. Let's go watch Netflix. You know, like yeah. you kind of lull yourself into pleasure. Yeah. But when you drink, like I drink vinegar water frequently, it yeah. kind of gives me like, a, you know, right. like I feel this like empowerment from it that I want to go conquer the world. If I have, cool. If I, have a, if I have a sweet drink, you know, you kind of want to like get, you know, just curl up with a book. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so there's truth to this. <laughs> when was the study? Um, recently. <laughs> I, I don't remember. It's not during St. Jerome's time. <laughs> exactly. Within 20 years. Okay, very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Amame. I want to know what the amame drink is. Like, is that yeah. just fish sauce and exactly. vodka? <laughs> okay, so can I give you some examples of Jerome's sourness. Okay. There are three. Okay. So there's a fellow traveler named Rufinus, and they were both fans of Origen, and they both translated Origen from the Greek into the Latin, and they were good friends. So Origen is a church, early church father. Yeah. Not a saint. Yeah, I guess he is considered a church father. So there is kind of a shadow over Origen. Mm-hmm because there are some questions about his orthodoxy regarding universal salvation. Mm -hmm. Did he believe that all souls are saved and there's no such thing as hell for human beings, which is not orthodox teaching. So, um, but on the other hand, Origen was was a great scholar, a great exegete of the Bible, and he had a big influence on a lot of people, including Jerome. So he had a lot of fans, but then this new round of accusations came out Rufinus and Jerome had a big falling out. And Rufinus published uh, among his friends a private letter saying Jerome's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Bad actor. So Jerome got wind of this 
and he just ripped Rufinus a new one. Okay. Like, why are you hiding? If your accusations are true, they should be public. Mm-hmm. If they're false, you should shut up. But why are you just privately circulating this like a sniveling coward? I would agree. Yeah, and yeah. then he refers to, he basically calls Rufinus a pig with a, with a wrinkled up nose and flared up nostrils. He's painting quite the picture there. I mean, he's very descriptive. We tell our kids when they're you know, taking the writing classes, you know, write descriptively. Yep. Wow. He was really descriptive. Yeah. So that was him and Rufinus. That's so funny. The other guy he was really mad at was St. Ambrose of Milan. Yeah. So Jerome was in Rome. He was, uh, he, he got commissioned by Pope Damasus to write the Vulgate. Damasus loved him. And I think he kind of expected, I, I probably could become the next bishop of Rome. Oh, wow. But instead, the Pope died. And without the Pope's patronage, Jerome found himself out of favor mm-hmm. and was exiled from the city by what he calls a Senate of Pharisees. Oh. And then he eventually founded a monastery Again, in Bethlehem. very descriptive. Very descriptive. But then after he... So you said he founded a monastery? Yeah, he founded a monastery in Bethlehem. Did not know that. And that's where he did most of his work. That's why he's portrayed in Christian art with a a lion. lion. Mm -hmm. Because he was like in the wilderness and a lion came to him and it had a thorn in its paw. Mm -hmm. And he removed the thorn. So he had a gentle side. For animals. Uh, Well, well, it's a lion for Pete's sake. That took courage. He removes the thorn from the paw of the lion and the lion becomes his buddy. So that's why he's portrayed in Christian art with a lion. So he's in the monastery of Bethlehem. He's got a lot of followers. Um, although the monastery burns to the ground several years before his death by unknown assailants. Mm. Yeah, we don't know anything more no about theories? that. Okay. No theories? Okay. No theories. But anyway, he goes back, and then he hears... Rufinus. Uh, ...that Ambrose went from being, and this is true, went from being a catechumen to a bishop... Like in that. nine days. <laughs> yeah. So he is, as they would say in New England, bullshit. <laughs> oh, they could say wicked pissed. Oh, yeah. There are several expressions for anger in New England. They, they have oh, mastered the Oh, we have a art. lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> kind of our bailiwick. So he's really mad. And he writes of Ambrose, One who was yesterday a catechumen is today a bishop. One who was yesterday in the amphitheater is today in the church. One who spent the evening yesterday in the circus stands in the morning at the altar. One who was a little while ago a patron of actors is now a protector of virgins. Patron of actors? Like he's describing the Roman gentleman. Okay. Who patronized the amphitheater and the theater Mm -hmm. and the Roman games and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly he's Mr. Pure Bishop. And meanwhile, he's not a bishop at all. He's an abbot, probably. Uh, Jerome is just simply a priest. But Okay, but he did found monasteries. Yeah, but, but the whole abbot have, thing wasn't... Was not yeah. happening yet. Okay. So he's like a nobody, right. so to speak. And, uh, and then he didn't like Ambrose's writings. He called him a jackdaw who decks himself in other birds' showy feathers and who writes... Bad things in Latin, taken from good things in Greek. <laughs> so how how do we square this circle? Like this is a very acerbic person who is basically um, detracting, like 
not just detracting behind people's backs, but is publicly detracting a future saint. How does this guy get to be a saint, Mike? Well, I'm just saying there's hope for us all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to start writing like this. I'm tired of this culture of niceness. I'm going to write like Jerome, and hopefully that will be added to my cause for canonization. Hey, I love you. I'm your wife. Yeah. You're my favorite caloric. I'm just saying, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm going to start calling you a jackdaw. Jackdaw. <laughs> oh, like you haven't already. <laughs> Get my slippers, you jackdaw, every morning. Every morning. I love you too. <laughs> but my favorite exchange is between Augustine and Jerome. Mm-hmm. Because I can't answer your question, Alexander, about you know, how to become a saint if you sow a cervix. I did notice how you sidestepped it. Go on. Well, I'll just put it to you this way. There was a polemical culture where you really could just go at it in a way that was still kind of acceptable. And ex- Oh, okay. So it was a cultural thing. Like it was okay to parry that way. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I mean... Look at Augustine's polemics against his heretical adversaries. Augustine hits hard. But was he like, that seems below the belt with Jerome. A jackdaw who was, you know, once just, just patronizing this and now he's doing this. Doesn't that seem a little below the belt? Wasn't, wasn't yeah. Augustine a little more like, these are the intellectual reasons why I object to this person. That's true. Although, I mean, fair enough. Your, your point stands... I'm just thinking of some of the stuff that Augustine said, like the Donatists. He didn't just have intellectual objections, but I mean, he would he would characterize them in dehumanizing ways. Okay, so still not my favorite way to... When I say dehumanizing, I'm just saying it, it's the polemics. I'll, I'll give you the example I'm thinking of. He's okay. not dehumanizing them in like a, right. we a say racist now. way or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, he says of the Donatists, um, the entire world recognizes the Catholic Church as the Catholic Church. The entire world resounds with the song, and these frogs sit in their marsh and croak, we are the only Christians. You gotta admit, that's, that's, that's great good, writing. That's good rhetoric. <laughs> no, that, and that would be convicting to me yeah. were I a Donatist. Yeah. And again, I mean, those, those are Donatists. Those are outside the tent. Yeah. I mean, he's speaking to a really powerful voice Inside the tent. Well, maybe, Jero- I mean, Jerome to Ambrose. I'm sure this was right after Ambrose's elevation to the throne of Milan. Um, and I'm sure once he realized what a great adversary of heresy Ambrose was, he may have, you know, backpedaled. Okay, so maybe he, we're he catching did, a media arrest. That's right. He, yeah. he did that with Augustine. He starts out really disliking Augustine, sure. which I'll get to, but I'll give you the happy ending. Mm-hmm. When Jerome saw the way that Augustine fought the Pelagians, mm-hmm. This is Jerome, the sourpuss. He described Augustine as the second founder of Christianity. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. There's yeah. progression. Yeah. yeah. Was there? I'm sorry. Was there? I'm going to go on, but was there progression for Jerome with Ambrose? Was he like, eh, I've come around to the old guy. I don't know. I, I'm not a Jerome scholar, so I just don't know. Yeah. Listener feedback. Let us know if you know that. If you're an Ambrose scholar or a Rufinus scholar. Rufinus. (laughs) I've devoted my life to that poor guy. I don't think I've ever met a Rufinus scholar. No. I mean, he is a a a worthy subject, but Mm -hmm. I just, I don't run into Rufinians. No, Rufi. (laughs) 
I, this is my favorite exchange of all time because both Augustine and Jerome are heavyweights, mm-hmm. but with different kinds of skills. True. Um, and the way their skills kind of complement each other made them a perfect match. This is the thriller in Manila. This is like the, the heavyweight rematch of the world. Two great, great scholars of the Latin church. By the way, I'm just now laughing over Thrilla Manila. Yeah, Manila. that was a uh, Muhammad Manali Ali fight versus... in, in the Philippines. Yeah. 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 Anyway. I'm Sports reference. My ref- Well, and all my sports references are hopelessly dated. So. <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on. All right. So, um, so Augustine is a young whelp. He's just become bishop. And he writes, he writes Jerome a long letter saying, hey, Jerome, how's it going? I heard you got this new translation coming out. Well, it's, it's causing a lot of trouble in North Africa. I got this bishop buddy, and he said gourd instead of blah, blah, and there was a riot in the town. And so uh, what's going on with that, buddy? And so it was gentle like that. Hey, buddy. But, but Augustine is pulling rank. I'm a bishop. Okay. It's my job to corral you priests. And like, so he said, can you just explain yourself? Okay. So he's asking for an explanation from a priest who's not in his diocese because right. of trouble it's causing in North Africa. Sure. And then he's really upset about the way Jerome interprets the famous scene in Galatians between Peter and Paul. When Peter is eating with the Gentiles, or he's eating with the Jews, and then the Gentiles come in, Gentile Christians, mm-hmm. and he gets up and ostensibly disses the Jews and then goes to eat with the Gentiles. And then Paul sees this and upbraids him. Mm-hmm. Jerome's interpretation is that the whole thing was staged. That uh, huh. they did that for the benefit. Both Peter and Paul did it for the benefit of showing both Jewish and Gentile Christians that were moving beyond kosher food. Hmm. Augustine was horrified that Jerome would think... He doesn't like lying. He doesn't like lying. Yeah. He was horrified to think that there was some kind of pious dissimulation going on. Insincerity. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Augustine writes a long letter. He gets no response. He writes another long letter, no response. That's an, writes another long letter, no response. The reason why there was no response was they didn't have a post office. Mm. And so these letters never got there. And then they... Finally, all three show up at once on Jerome's doorstep. Oh, it's like Pride and Prejudice. And now he's suddenly overwhelmed Mm -hmm. with this young whippersnapper with these very long letters. And uh, Augustine was trying to be really diplomatic. So I'm going to read you his three greetings to Jerome. Okay. The first one is, To Jerome, his most beloved lord and brother and fellow presbyter, Worthy of being honored and embraced with the sincerest affectionate devotion, Augustine sends greetings. <laughs> but that's common for the time. Yeah. yeah. To the second one, to my lord, much beloved, and brother worthy of being honored and embraced with the most sincere devotion of charity, my fellow presbyter Jerome, Augustine sends greetings. <laughs> and then finally, dude, to my venerable... My venerable Lord Jerome, my esteemed and holy brother and fellow presbyter, Augustine, sends greetings in the Lord. So, 
What do you make of that? Well, I'll tell you what Jerome makes of it. So Jerome gets these three letters and he writes back to, he only writes one letter back to Augustine. I've received by Cyprian the deacon three letters, or rather three little books (laughs) at the same time from your excellency, containing what you call sundry questions, but what I feel to be adversarial opinions about things that I have published. To answer which, if I were disposed to it, would require a very lengthy volume. (laughs) Who's got the time? Exactly. And then he says, and I'm going to pass over those courtesies of greeting with which you caress my head. Yeah, my obsequiousness. Yeah, those courtesy of greetings with which you caress my head and the flattery by which you try to take the edge off your reproof of me. <laughs> like, I see what you're doing, yeah. and I'm calling your BS, and I'm just cutting, I'm going straight to the chase. And so then he responds to Augustine's critiques. Mm-hmm. And a couple of my favorite lines, well, one of my favorite lines is, you must pardon my saying that you really don't seem to understand the matter. <laughs> <laughs> I spaced out who said that? Jerome to Augustine. Jerome says that, yeah. okay. Right. I spaced out because I was thinking about that line in um, the New Testament about heaping coals. Yeah. Is that, is Augustine heaping coals? No, Augustine is engaging in what I call pious palavering. Oh, palaver. Yeah, that's, that's a new theological category, but I think <laughs> it needs to enter into the lexicon, pious palavering. That's quite a palaver. I only know and, that word from Downton Abbey. And there actually is... A robust tradition of pious palavering. It's, Palaver just means conversation. It means right? it means uh, it means a kind of lying. Oh, really? Yeah. Palaver has is, a is a kind of dissimulation. Dissimulation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's not like, like not as strong as lying, but it's yeah. sort of like veering in a different direction. Well, I'll, give you, palaver, yeah. I'll give you an example of this. Um, dissimulation. Yeah. In one of Xenophon's dialogues about Socrates. Socrates says to a certain character, oh, you know, whoever you are, you know what I've always admired about you is your sense of moderation. Uh And as it turns out, the guy's not terribly moderate. And then another character calls him on and says, you know, that's not true. But so Socrates, what he does is he offers a compliment of what you could be, not in order to deceive you, but in order for you to reimagine yourself and, and to think, yeah, I could be that moderate guy who actually deserves that praise. Hmm. So it is a form of dissimulation. So you but would call that a, f- a pious palaver? Yes. Huh. I mean, don't exactly we, like, what I call it. don't our kids sometimes listen to us, but don't we do that with our kids sometimes? Like, I, isn't it a good and and teaching with, method? And with your students? Your wife? wife? No, never, this, never. This is a, a great meal. Shut up! You're stupid. <laughs> no, Mike. This is a this this is a good drink. That you know, real lemon juice. Oh, thank you. No, I recognize you do that with me, Mike. You're such a good cook. I'm not really a good cook. <laughs> I'm just so excited he cooked. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so brilliant at this. Oh, I'll stay in the kitchen forever. <laughs> I have no idea what you are talking about. <laughs> Who knew we'd get into our, our marital lives? I know. Talking about Saint Jerome. Anyway, it just I just 
Love the repartee. And then this is how he concludes. In closing this letter, I beseech you to have some consideration for a soldier who is now old and has long retired from active service, and not to force him to take the field again and expose his life to the chances of war. You, who are young and have been appointed to the conspicuous seat of a bishop, give yourself to teaching the people. Enrich Rome with new stories from your fertile Africa. I'm content to make but little noise in an obscure corner of a monastery with only one to hear me or read me. Oh. But you see the dig, like, yeah. you're this hot shot so, bishop so from, oh, where are you from again? again oh, North, North Africa. North Bum, what's yeah. it called? It's like, enrich, enrich New York City with your new stories from Kansas. <laughs> I mean, just like all the cultural digs. Yeah. I mean, Jerome man, two heavyweights, like, he knew how to give a hook, you know? Wow. <laughs> I love it. It just makes the church fathers real. It does, right? They're yeah. not they're not plaster saints. Yeah. Yeah. They had they I, I think about the Feast of St. Jerome is hug your favorite choleric day. Exactly. You know, like sometimes you've got that acerbic personality in your life. Maybe sometimes you've married him or she birthed you. But yeah. you have to there's something that's pretty amazing about the strength of of certain people. Maybe they don't get along well or don't do great at parties, but you do great at parties. Well, thank you. But there's something to be said for that like person who just like doesn't really care about other people's opinions. And friends, saintly sippers, if you do have the opportunity to invite St. Jerome to a cocktail party or a dinner party, I humbly advise against it. <laughs> I will end with this final quote. Um, when Jerome, when the subject of... Uh, eating and drinking came up, Jerome said, whenever I eat or drink, or whatever else I do, the dreadful trumpet of the last day seems always sounding in my ears, <laughs> saying to me, arise, ye dead, and come to judgment. Yeah, he's fun at parties. Yeah, so kind of a party pooper. St. <laughs> <laughs> Jerome... Pray for, us. pray for us. We're sorry. We hope that you will uh, welcome us to the heavenly party if we make it there. Indeed. And pray and that I, we do make it to that heavenly and party. And I'm sure some of us saintly sippers, myself first among them, probably need to heed that warning more often than not. So. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> for me. Oh, this has been a lovely, ha holy happy hour. Thank you for joining us. Mrs. Foley, I'm giving you, the not Jer Saint Jerome, the final word. Well, I just, I just want to tell you, Mike, <clears throat> you haven't heard this, but... Our, our kids don't usually listen to us, I don't think, but we mentioned one of our one of our kids, I think the last time, you know who you are, and she texted and said, I'm listening to mom and dad's podcast at 1.5 speed, the way God intended. <laughs> so that's her mind. And I want to make that part of our front matter. We remind our friends, our listeners, just remember, you can always listen to us at 1.25 or 1.5 speed. <laughs> We're even better that way. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us to your health and holiness. God bless. Thank you for joining us. Please get in touch with us via email at podcast at 
drinkingwiththesaints.com. Or on our Instagram page, at Drinking Saints. And find Drinking With The Saints book series at drinkingwiththesaints.com or wherever fine books are sold. The Drinking With The Saints podcast is produced by Back Row Media.